The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The word of God for the people of God. It's so good to be with you. Uh, every time Justin and Bob tell the story of how many people they sent with us, that number grows. <laughs> Two dozen people. Come on. Um, you did send some people and some money and more than that, partnership. Uh, God has done great things at Providence, and, and it's hard to imagine those things happening without you guys, uh, without what we learned here during our time in Omaha, without my friendship with Bob and the staff here. Uh, it really would be difficult to imagine. Austin's a very transient city, lots of people moving in and out. COVID like magnified all of that. And so we've had just a ton of new people coming through the doors. Um, for the last nine weeks at church, I have personally met someone who was there for the first time. It's like every week. And some of those people, it's their first time to church anywhere ever. And they just have no idea what they're walking into. And so, and some of them walk out uh, before it's over. All that to say, just God's given us a great spot in the middle of the city, uh, ministering to people who are far from Christ, uh, but also making disciples and multiplying them in the city. And we're just, we're indebted to you for having that opportunity and joy. So thanks for being a partner in the gospel with us. About... Um, about 15 years ago now, which is hard to believe, Bob and I wrote a little Bible study, a little small group content, and the main diagram in that content is called the cross chart. I think many of you are familiar with the cross chart. We didn't invent the cross chart. We stole it slash borrowed it from a man named Jack Miller and then got permission to do so. The, the basic idea behind the cross chart is there's this growing awareness, like the Christian life involves this growing awareness of who God is. So this line is kind of going up that way. And then there's like this growing awareness of who I am. So I'm, I'm becoming more and more aware of God's goodness and beauty and wisdom and holiness. And at the same time, I'm becoming more and more aware of the depths of my sin, like not just the behaviors, but the desires and the, and the lies and the heart idols that lie underneath them. Both are happening at the same time. As I become more accurately aware of who God is, and as I come to see myself more accurately, what happens is I become to see the great chasm between us and my desperate need for a Savior. Not just to atone for my sins, certainly that, 
but also to bring me into fellowship with this good and holy God. Uh, that is a pretty good framework for the book of James. Throughout this letter that you guys have been studying, James over and over is showing us the depths of our sin, not just the behaviors. He begins there, but he shows us the desires and the deception that fuels those behaviors. But he also, at the same time, throughout the letter, is setting forth to us a generous, righteous, loving, gracious God. James uses this phrase, friendship with God, because what he's saying is, hey, this good, generous, holy God, you want to know him. You want to serve him. And so he uses this phrase that you guys looked at maybe last week or the week before, friendship with God. That's, that's what we want. I want friendship with God. The barrier, the main barrier in the book of James to friendship with God is human pride and arrogance. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud. It's pretty straightforward. Now, when we think of pride and arrogance, we tend to think of very brash pride, sort of overtly rebellious pride. But what James is going to show us is that pride can be kind of sneaky. It's the nature of it. Uh, pride can be subtle. It can show up in your life in everyday, normal ways that you're not even aware of. It can easily go undetected in our lives. In our text today, James is going to give us two examples of this, judgmentalism and presumption. Uh, both of these things put self at the center of our lives. Uh, judgmentalism puts self-concern at the center of our lives. Presumption puts self-sufficiency at the center of our lives. And the bad news about that is that God opposes all of those things. But we're also going to see that there's good news because in the same verse, James says God opposes the proud, but then he says, but also he gives grace to the humble. There is so much grace available to us today. Like, we're going to look at some sin. It's going to feel a little overwhelming at times, but don't forget, there's so much grace available to you today in Christ. And James is going to show us the way there. It's through humility. All right, he gives us two examples of what pride and humility looks like in everyday life, stuff that feels normal to us, that judgmentalism and presumption. And we're going to just look at them one at a time. So open up to James 4, if you have it. James 4, verse 11. Let's look at judgmentalism. Verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, so the first command is do not speak evil against one another. The word speak evil can denote lots of various kinds of harmful speech. The focus in this text is on slander, which is to say something that taints or damages someone else's reputation. It's to talk somebody down. Alistair Begg says it's the repeating, the unhelpful repeating of stories to do someone down. And he's like Scottish. He'll be like, do someone down. It sounds way better when he says it. 
when we say something that damages someone's reputation or that makes someone think less of them or taints someone's perception of them, that's slander. That's what he's talking about. The other word here in verse 11 is judges. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. So there's a kind of judging in the Bible that's good. It just means to distinguish between two things, like to discern between right and wrong. James is doing that kind of judging all throughout this letter, right? So he's not, he's not talking about that here. What he means here is the kind of judging that speaks in a condemning way about someone. And listen, to speak in a condemning way about someone doesn't necessarily have to be a lie. You can use the truth to belittle people. So it has a lot to do with the intent behind which we are saying the words that we're saying. This is what we would call being judgmental. Just kind of looking down, speaking down about someone. So throughout the New Testament, over and over, we are told to use our words to build one another up, to be for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And James is just here pointing out the reality that often we use our words to speak against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the first temptation when you're reading a passage like this is to say, I don't think I'm like that. Man, I don't like slander people. That's a hard word. Slander? I don't think I do that. You might not. You know, I mean, some people struggle with this more than others. You might not do it that much. The tricky thing about that is pride. Because pride so blinds us to ourselves. It convinces us that we're right so much of the time that it's hard to see when we're in the wrong. And so my suggestion is when you come to the scriptures, don't let your first initial reaction be like, oh man, that's not me. It is. I do know who that is. That would be helpful for them. <laughs> see, you just did it. You just did it. My suggestion is come to the scriptures and say, all right, Lord, help me to see myself more accurately. Is there any offensive way in me? Is there any judgmentalism and slander in my heart? I just, I want to see it because I want to see myself more accurately so that I can see you and know you more accurately. Here's the thing in this text that resonates with me. The word judges, so there's a form of this word in the Greek that is more intense. And this, th this form of the word is like less intense. It's almost like making a judgment that's not very well thought out. Like sort of just casually condemning someone in ways that you're probably not even aware of it. And that, that resonates with me. I honestly can't, I couldn't think this week of a time when I like intentionally wanted to slander someone, you know, just tear them down, ruin their reputation. I, I literally can't, I just have not, I don't think set out to do that. But I have done that casually and carelessly way more than I am even aware of probably. I have uh, shared stories that highlight someone's weakness, usually to highlight my strength in that area. I have made assumptions about people that are negative and then shared my unconfirmed assumptions about them with others. Look, once you do that, even if you say like, hey, I don't know this for sure, but my guess, my read is, whatever it is, whatever your assumption is that you haven't confirmed, you've tainted the whole thing. You've colored this person's perception of this other person. That is slander. You don't want to call it that, but that's what James calls it. That's what it is. I've done that. I did that yesterday, I think. 
Unconfirmed assumptions being shared, that to me, that's one of the most common things that happens in a Christian community because we're concerned for each other, and so we want to talk about it. And we want to be seen as the ones who have the right perception. We're the ones who are in the know. It's just, it's just slander. I've talked about people as if they were beyond help, just like hopeless. Usually, I do that to justify the reasons that I was not able to help them or did not help them. That's slander. That's speaking evil against a person. It's condemning them. So the first temptation is to say, I don't do that. Now, hopefully, maybe you're convinced that maybe you do. The second temptation then that's cropping up is to say, okay, well, maybe a little. But it's not really that bad, is it? And James says, no, it is. It is really that bad for several reasons he wants to give us. Here's the first reason. It harms your brother or sister. James repeats the word brother three times in this command because he is trying to emphasize to us, not only are we doing this, we're doing this to, in the family, and he wants us to see the personal consequences of slander. You're hurting people. Tom Bloom observes that slander is a form of stealing. Proverbs 22 says, you should choose a good name over great Riches. So what's a good name? Well, a good name is who you are in the mind of others. It's your reputation. And since relationships, he says, trade in the currency of trust, a good name is a very precious asset. And so when we do damage to someone's name unjustly, we are stealing their good name from them and all of the good things that come with that. We're doing harm to our brother and sister. The other thing James says is you're speaking against the law. You're not just speaking against this person. You're speaking against the law of God. What's the, what's the main law? Right? Paul says the fulfillment of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if love is the fulfillment of the law, then slander and judgmentalism is like felony offense of the law of God. Who are you? Just sit above the law, is what he's saying. The last thing, and maybe the worst, it got worse, it gets worse, yeah, is it puts self in the place of God as judge. To judge someone in a condemning way is to assume a place of authority over them. It's to say, like, look, because I think rightly about all, really almost everything, then I can belittle another person's point of view because it's different than mine. Because my preferences are clearly better than other people's preferences, then I can make moral judgments about the way people do things. I did that yesterday in our equip group. I did a little rant on the coffee situation here in Omaha and I condemned it. <laughs> but that's a silly illustration, but I do kind of feel that way. I just feel like my experience with coffee puts me in a position to be the authority, and therefore I can look down and judge, help others in this way. Okay, but just take that little silly thing, which really doesn't mean much, maybe it means more than I think, and just put it into some other categories and you can see how devastating it is. We put ourselves in the place of God, and James wants to remind us in this text that we are not God. 
which is like a very fundamental truth in the Christian faith. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. It's not you. It's God, and he is able to save and to destroy, right? God is the lawgiver. Our place, our task is to receive the law and to set our wills to obeying it by his grace and in the power of his spirit. And the primary expression of obedience to God's law is love for one another. God is the judge. We are those who stand in judgment. And if you could keep that front of mind, it would produce so much humility and compassion in your life because we're all in the same boat in this regard. We will all give account. We will all stand before the one judge. So what do we do? What do we do with this judgmentalism in our hearts? This pride. Two things. Probably lots of things. I'll give you two. Receive mercy. God is the judge. He is the one who is able to save and to destroy. The good news of the gospel is that he is willing to save and not to destroy because of Christ. More than that, he's willing to take our judgment upon himself. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel is such a great, powerful illustration of this. Uh, this is Genesis 4. This is the first murder. And the link to James 4 is uh, that these slanderous, judgmental words, these are murderous words. That's how J Jesus talks about them in the Sermon on the Mount. They're murderous words. So it's, it's linked to the same kind of heart condition. Cain, you know the story, was envious of his brother Abel. And, and so God invited Cain into fellowship, tried to say, hey, man, what's going on with you? Let's talk about this. Cain wasn't having it. He's like, am I my brother's keeper? He's already distancing himself from his brother. And God, God says, warns him. He's like, hey, sin is crouching at the door, man. It wants to devour you. But Cain doesn't heed the warning. He just can't let it go. He nurses this anger, these unconfirmed assumptions he has about Abel and about God until finally it just gets the best of him. He kills his brother. And God comes to Cain and says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So James is saying, we all stand with Cain in that we all deserve to be destroyed in the judgment of God because of our own sin, our own murderous words. But God brings about justice in another way. He lays our condemnation at the feet of Jesus. Jesus endures the slander of wicked people and gives himself up unto the judgment of death on a cross. He shed his blood for us. Hebrews says, we have come to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, Listen to what he says. The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out to God for justice against sinners. The blood of Jesus cries out to God for mercy for sinners. Receive mercy. 
Do not walk out of here going, man, I got to stop being so judgmental. It won't work. Receive mercy from God. And then, as those who have received mercy, show mercy. If we have received mercy from God, that is the resources we need to then have a disposition of mercy toward others. Uh, one example I was thinking of, you know how you, um, you have certain perceptions about someone that you don't really know that well, and then you get like in a small group or something, and you hear their story, and you're like, oh, and you feel so much more compassionate and merciful and understanding of them. You know how that works? This is what James is pointing us to. He's pointing us to meaningful relationships and community as the antidote to judgmentalism. When you know people, you're way more inclined toward mercy. I was at one of my son's basketball games one time uh, with a friend of mine, and <clears throat> I, I think I know a lot about basketball, which puts me in a place of authority over the referees. So <laughs> it's my son, and the, it... The game was not going well from the referee standpoint. Lots of terrible calls. Of course, it's like middle school basketball, so what do you expect? And I have my buddy with me who, who is a coach, and he knows a lot about basketball. And he was like, man, that ref signal, not only are the calls bad, the signals are bad. You know, like you, a charge would be like, you know, and his, he was like, you know, it was just weird stuff he was doing. And so we're just spending the entire night just going after this ref with each other and out loud. I mean, I'm just like, Terrible call. You know, I'm just, I'm, it's a middle school basketball game. And we are just tearing him down. Okay, after the game, I'm at, I'm at uh, another game after like the varsity game or something. And I'm standing on the side and this guy walks up to me in plain clothes. I was like, oh, that's Steve. Steve was a guy that discipled me when I was in college, had a pretty significant impact in my life. I just hadn't seen him in a while. And as he got closer, I realized Steve was refereeing that game. Steve is the ref that we were making fun of the entire night. I could in my mind somehow live with just going after somebody I didn't know. But once it, that person became Steve, I felt like this deep sense of conviction. This is what he's saying. Hey, we've got, we've got to be living in community, knowing people, because it's really hard to condemn people that you know, that you really know. And it's much more easy to show mercy. All right, that's the first example in everyday life, judgmentalism. And the path of humility involves being in community. Second example is more common, presumption. Presumption. I was talking with a young man recently, and we were talking about God and church and gospel and stuff like that. And he said, you know, I, like, I don't disagree with any of it. I just don't think about it that much. And I was like, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. And, you know, like part of what it means to be a Christian is we think about it. We think about God a lot, actually. We're always concerned about these two lines, you know, like more and more seeing God and more and more seeing ourselves and our need for Jesus. So if you just don't think about it that much, I'm like, well, well then what are you doing? Now, he didn't say that arrogantly. He just meant like, I mean, I'm just kind of going about my life, doing my thing, trying to live a good life. And what James is going to say is like, yeah, that actually, as innocent as it seems, reveals a great deal of arrogance. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That all sounds normal, right? We have plans, we have goals, business goals. 
we're pretty sure that if we just follow the plan that we'll get, you know, the outcome will be a certain way. I mean, this is just how life works, right? James like, well, let's talk about it. You think you know how things will go, but actually, verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He's calling on our presumption. We presume to know what will happen in the future. We talk about what will happen in the future. But in reality, we don't have any control over that. We don't know that tomorrow will even exist, much less what will happen in tomorrow if it does exist. Okay, sure, we say, yeah, okay, got it. Technically speaking, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you kind of do, right? Like you have the calendar set up. That's all going to happen. It happened last Monday. Probably going to happen tomorrow. Like you have this sense of like, all right, all right, all right. I don't know that this is really that big a deal. And again, James is saying, no, it is. It is a big deal. The words he uses in verse 16 are that it's arrogant and evil. I don't like those words. There they are. Why is it so bad? This thing that we all do just in our sleep, why is it so bad? Well, notice what's missing from the statement. The statement that that he says is, or that we say is, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What's wrong in that? What's missing there? There's no mention of God. I would love to get like uh, a transcript of my internal dialogue and just see if, if there's men, how many mentions of God there are in my plans. The issue is not that they don't believe in God. The issue is that people who believe in God often live their lives without really thinking about him very much. And, and it's a prideful presumption. Look what it assumes. The statement assumes or presumes that we are master over life itself. I'll be alive tomorrow. I'll probably be alive a year from now. I'm healthy. I'm of sound mind. I think things are going to be fine. Like, I'm making plans accordingly. That's a presumption of that I'm master of life. The statement presumes that we're master over our own choices. Look at this statement. All of the choices we get to, we decide when we're, we're going to go, where we're going to go, how long we're going to go, what we're going to do when we get there. I mean, this is how life works. If I just simply decide, it will be so. The statement presumes that we are master over our own abilities. These businessmen are saying, we're going to go here, trade, we're going to make a profit. Right? Not only am I in control of what I'm going to do, I'm in control of what the outcome will be. I'm going to make money, of course. I'm a capable person. Verse 16 says, you boast in your arrogance. Like just doing life according to your own means and your own resources and your own abilities and not thinking about God that much, as innocent as it seems, James says, you boast in your arrogance. Boasting in your arrogance just means that you you pride yourself in your ability to get it done on your own. Now, listen, James is not rebuking them for making plans. He's not rebuking them even for the desire to make money. He's rebuking them for the worldly self-confidence and the arrogance that presumes the ability to determine outcomes in the future. As if it was just up to you. Also, see how these are related. 
If your success is just up to you, do you see how that gives you a place of superiority to judge others who aren't as successful? If they just worked harder, I work hard. Presumption puts us, puts self in the place of God. And again, James wants to remind us of this very important truth. You are not God. Look what he says. What is your life? What is it? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's pretty blunt. I mean, what James is saying, you know how I know that you're not God? Because God's eternal, and you, my friend, are like a puff of smoke. And it's not just about the span of your life. This is about the substance of your life. What is the substance of your life? What is the thing that makes you feel like life is meaningful? Life has purpose. What is the thing? What is the source of comfort and security in your life? What is the reason that you think you're always right, at least most of the time right? What is that? Whatever it is, whatever that thing is that makes you feel like life has substance, James is saying it's actually a mist. It's going to go away. It's not reliable. In this little parable that James tells with these merchants, the thing is money. That's the thing, which makes sense. That's the thing for a lot of us. If you have plenty of money, you feel that cushion. I know you do. You feel like there's some margin. You feel like prepared, more prepared than most to tackle the problems life's going to throw at you, to, to uh, solve problems, to deal with hardship. You feel prepared for that. You have plans for your money. People with money have plans for their money. Investment plans, purchasing plans, vacation plans, all the things. And it's not that any of those plans are wrong. James is just saying, but they're, they're uncertain because money is like a mist. It goes away when you go away, maybe before then. Now, if you don't have plenty of money, you're not off the hook because what's true about you is you think life would be okay if you did have plenty of money. In Texas, maybe this was in the nation, I wasn't paying attention, but uh, the Powerball a couple weeks ago was up to like $2 billion. That's a lot of money. That's plenty. I would define that as plenty of money. <laughs> and I don't, for whatever reason, the news stories just kept getting my attention, and I thought, maybe I should just go get a ticket. I'll go get a ticket. One ticket. If the Lord wills off of one ticket, <laughs> more than one ticket would be gambling. One ticket is just giving God a chance, you know? <laughs> Thinking it through. My family was out of town. It's like, nobody will even know. They're going to know when I get that $2 billion. They're going to know. All right, so the legalists here are like, did you get the, no, I didn't get the ticket. But I started daydreaming about the $2 billion, just like what I would do with it. I gave 90% of it away, because that's easy to do when you start with $2 billion. So I still had, I don't know what the math is, a lot of money, and I started thinking about what I'm going to do with it. And I get like really practical down the road, you know, college and house and whatever, all the things. And I felt this calm, like the pressures of life lifted for a minute. You see what's going on there? I think money would make life okay. And James is saying, actually, that's not true. Jesus told a story about a guy who had plenty, and he's like, I have plenty. 
I have plenty stored up upon plenty, and so I will just relax and drink and be merry. And Jesus says, hey, learn from this guy. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That's not the substance of life. And what he says about this guy is, little does he know, his life will be required of him tonight. He is a mist. Presumption puts ourselves in the place of God, as if we can meet our own needs, take care of our own selves, as if we're in control. Now, here's the tension around this. If my life is a mist, then what meaning does my life have? Apart from God, I don't have a great answer to that question, but because of God, your life has immense meaning and purpose. This is the wonder of the kingdom. Jesus says we can take this small and fragile life that we have and invest it in things that last. We can lay up treasures in heaven. And in this sense, everything we do matters. That's why Paul says, even whether you eat or drink, do everything unto the glory of God, because whatever is done unto the glory of God matters and lasts. A life lived for self is at best treasures on earth, a mist. A life lived before God, all of life lived before God, quorum Deo, that's a life that lasts. So verse 15, this is where James is pointing us. He says, instead of being presumptuous, instead of saying we're going to go this here and do that and this, instead say this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now listen, James is not telling you to put this little slogan on the end of every sentence that you have. Like if you say, well, I'm going to go to lunch now, God willing, don't do that. <laughs> that's superstitious and kind of annoying. Don't, that's not what he's saying. He's just asking us to be aware of who's in control of our plans. It's interesting, the outcome is the same in verse 15 and in verse 13. In verse 13, we will live and we will do this and that. And in verse 15, we will live and we will do this or that. The difference is in the acknowledgement of who controls the outcome, who causes it. In verse 13, it's I will do it, but in verse 15, it's the Lord's will. Our lives are in his hands. So I'm making plans, right? But I'm making plans with the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, God's providence. I'm making plans knowing that these plans are in his hands. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about aligning your life with the revealed will of God. So, you know, the prayer that we pray today begins, our Father in heaven, hallowed be the name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Starting every day with that prayer is a way of aligning yourself with God's will being done in your life on earth in the plans that you have made. It refines your plans. Jesus modeled this kind of life. He, he sought God constantly. He says, look, I can only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what the Father tells me to say. This kind of constant acknowledgement of God's control brought him to the place where he discerned that it was God's will, in fact, for him to go to the cross. And it was because he'd always been putting his life in God's hands, he was able to do it in that moment, to say, not my will, but your will be done. He went to the cross to save us, but also to bring us into friendship, fellowship with God. Friendship with God means that God wants to bring us into his plans. 
He wants to use us to accomplish his plans. And so it is normal for Christians to say every day, God, here's my life. It belongs to you. What do you want to do? You're the master of my life, not me. That's a far cry from I don't think about it very much. This is what's normal for the Christian. And so the way we deal with our judgmentalism and presumption and lots of other things is to pursue humility with God. And the way we pursue humility with God is to think about him a lot. And so I'm going to give you one point of application and we're going to wrap up. Think about God. I'm going to say all the normal pastor things right now. Read the Bible. Pray. Give thanks in every circumstance. Rejoice always. Be in community. This is the stuff that probably your pastors are telling you all the time to do, and it feels very churchy, but the reason we're telling you to do that is because this is what's normal for the Christian life. We think about God so much because he is the substance of life. Let's seek him together now. God, the very fact that you would gather us together to sit under your word in the presence of your spirit and in the company of believers is very humbling. We did not do anything to earn this or deserve it, but here you are meeting with us, inviting us into friendship. And so I pray that you would humble our hearts in this moment. Help us to see our sin, not to be buried by it, but to repent of it and to choose life in you today. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.